he says, now the slate is clear. It is clean. He says, there's not even a jot of ink. There's not even a dash or a mark against your name, let alone a letter or a word or the articulation of a sin. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part two of Abiding in the Last Hour with Pastor Paul Twiss from 1 John chapter two. The Apostle John authored John's Gospel and Revelation, and he wrote three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Pastor Paul started yesterday on an eight-part series in 1st John, and he joins us now to tell us why. So welcome, Pastor Paul. You've said in a recent series that John's first epistle is one of your favorites. Tell us why. Well, Matt, here in 1 John, the apostle is very direct. He writes to assure these brothers and sisters of their salvation, at the same time making plain to them the error of the false teachers. John makes clear that if you claim to be a Christian and yet live in sin without love for your Christian brothers and sisters, you remain in darkness. That's a strong call to action for all of us who claim the name of Jesus. Thanks, Pastor Paul. Here's part two of Abiding in the Last Hour. One thing I'm convinced John is not doing is dividing the congregation. I do not think that John is looking at one half saying, fathers, and by that I take to mean simply those who are who are old in age, perhaps been walking in the faith for longer. I don't think he's saying, fathers, you have this blessing, not the young men. And then he turns to the young men, the, the younger men in the congregation, perhaps more new to the faith, and say, and you have this blessing, and perhaps not true of the fathers. I don't think that's what he's doing, which is what so many people suggest. The primary reason being that when you think about the context of this letter, John is writing to a church who are facing some kind of false teaching which inherently was divisive. The false teaching that he's trying to battle against with this letter was already dividing churches. The last thing John wants to do at this stage in their life, in in the midst of this trial, is to introduce any thought that might further separate them. More than that, as we study the blessings that he outlines, we can see there is a degree of interchangeability between them. The blessings that he outlines are true, I would argue, for all Christians. And so I think what John is doing is actually the exact opposite, which is that he's seeking to unite. I think with pastoral skill, John is writing the particular truth that needs to be ministered to this group within the congregation at this time. And so it serves as a great encouragement for them to hear. What is the first truth he outlines to the whole congregation Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven, more literally, on account of his name. This is the entry point into the gospel. I've been trying to stress over the last few weeks how we cannot afford to have a gospel that is so small that the only thing we can articulate about it is, I'm not going to hell anymore. 
We need to understand how vast and enormous the gospel is, how it encompasses so many blessings, and that the entry point where we so often stop in our thinking about the gospel, but it is merely the entry point into salvation blessing, is that your sins have been forgiven. John says, where it was once true that there were 10,000 upon 10,000 sins listed against your name, because as Isaiah says, even our best deeds are as filthy rags, so that every thought and every word and every deed is soaked in sin, and you can't get away from the fact that every day you live, you are adding to that list. And where it was once true that you would soon stand in front of a holy judge, and he would hold you accountable for every thing written against your name, and there would be nowhere to run and nowhere to hide, and the only plea that you could offer is guilty every single time, he says, now the slate is clear. It is clean. He says, there's not even a jot of ink. There's not even a dash or a mark against your name, let alone a letter or a word or the articulation of a sin. The debt has been paid, he says. Now, why does he seek to minister this simple gospel reality to the whole congregation? Well, we need to be careful to reconstruct the historical situation behind the letter beyond what the text gives us. So what do we know about 1 John? There's some false teaching. Some kind of distortion of Christ. It seems like the teachers were teaching that Christ had not come in the flesh. That led to a distortion of the gospel, and then the teachers left. And we don't know a whole lot more than that. So commentators go round in circles trying to construct the particular heresy more and more and more, and we just need to be cautious when we do that. So we don't know exactly why John has to start with this gospel indicative but what we do know to be true is that as this passage is in the Word of God ministering to us this evening, there is a particular issue that speaks to every generation of Christians that ever has been, and that is the fact that we so often seek to earn a forgiveness of sins on account of our name. So we've already mentioned this this evening. John is careful to say, because your sins are forgiven on account of his name. In the Old Testament, when you invoke somebody's name, it's so much more than simply referring to their name on a paper. There is this overlap with invoking their very presence. When Aaron prays in number six, Lord, cause your face to shine upon them. The ironic blessing, cause your face, your presence, your being to shine upon Israel the Lord then offers commentary on that, and he says, in this way, I'll cause my name to rest upon them. There's this overlap between invoking somebody's name and referring to their very presence, their very being. And John is careful to articulate how it is our sins have been forgiven. It is on account of the name of Jesus, and it is not on the account of our name. Though that is our tendency, though we may confess that Jesus has forgiven us of our sins, we yet try to work out some kind of approval from God. 
John is saying it is the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ and Christ alone that secures your forgiveness of sin. And this is the foundational truth, the entry point to the gospel of which we can never, ever, ever grow weary. It is where we must begin and it is where we must end. And we must delight in the fact that our sins have been forgiven on account of his name. And as if that were not enough, he goes on to give a second gospel indicative. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, fathers, because you know him, referring, I think, here to God the Father. You know him who is from the beginning. Whereas it was once true that you were far off. Whereas it is once true that the God who fashioned you, who created the whole universe, who set the stars in place and called them by name, who formed the ocean deeps, and he said, thus far you shall go and no further, that God who is holy and righteous, the judge who will judge the world, he was far off from you and you had no way of accessing him. Whereas all of that was once true and you could not even consider how you might approach him by the benefit of the gospel, you have been brought near. This is a relational term. You might translate it more literally because you have come to know him. He's not talking about a, a theological knowledge of the father. He's saying you have been brought into a relationship with this one. You now have communion with God. I think about the time when I was on the back of an aircraft carrier in the Indian Ocean. We were out there for a few months, and there was just one morning that I remember so clearly. I got up very early, went to the back of the ship, huge vessel, and I just sat there, me and my Bible. And what occurred to me as I was reading early that morning was that I could turn around 360 degrees, and everywhere, all I could see was ocean. I could see a horizon for 360 degrees, and it was just water. There was no one else around, and there was certainly no other ship or vessel on the sea. And I would say there are a few things that have caused me to realize just how insignificant I am than that one experience. You very quickly start to realize just how great and enormous and powerful God is and just how insignificant you are. And then that feeling of insignificance was juxtaposed, met with a profound awareness of how much God loves me. I think I was in the Psalms and I'm trying to remember rightly, I think I was reading Psalm 13. I will trust in your steadfast love. I will rejoice in my salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I will sing to the Lord who made these oceans who could flick this aircraft carrier into oblivion, who fashioned me and knows me. And because of my sin, I was separated from him. I will sing to him. 
Why indicative? Because he has dealt bountifully with me. He has been kind to me. His grace was shed abroad in my heart and he saved me. And so I feel so insignificant and yet I am aware of his great love for me. John says, fathers, you have been brought into a relationship with the Father. Now, why does he find need to minister this particular indicative of the gospel at this point to this subset of the congregation? Again, we have to be careful to go beyond that which we know about the historical context. I do know that there is a particular temptation that plagues all of us all the time because of the virtue of the sin that remains. And that is simply that we all are suspicious of God. We all tend to be suspicious of him. When God says, I love you, we struggle to fully accept that. When he says, there is nothing you can do to take my love away from you. We don't quite trust him. And when he says, now in Christ Jesus, there is nothing I do for you except good. We just struggle to get our arms around that. It is a suspicion that is embedded in our hearts and it goes all the way back to the garden when that snake said to Eve, did God really say? He's not simply seeking to leave, lead Eve astray and prompt her to turn her back on the Creator and rebel against him. More fundamentally than that, the serpent is undermining the very character of God. He is calling into question the integrity of God. And as Eve bought into the distorted representation of the truth, and then she sinned, there was a suspicion introduced into the human heart directed towards God. So that today, we who have been saved by the blood of Christ, I gave my son for you, he says, Romans chapter 8. What else will I withhold from you? We who sing his praises and come to worship him at the same time are just a little bit cautious. John says, gospel indicative, you have been brought into a relationship with the Father. You have seen his faithfulness. The gospel demonstrates his commitment to you. It is a truth that we must cling to, to enjoy a full life in Christ. And as if that's not enough, he gives a third. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. Whereas at one point you were enslaved to sin. And a parallel truth, Ephesians chapter 2, is that our spirits were in submission to the prince of the power of the air. We were doing his will and we were at his bidding. Whereas once you had no option but to sin and the only thing that you desired was to sin. You were enslaved under his realm and he was laughing at your misery. Now the chains of sin have been broken. Now he can't lay a hand on you without the permission of the Father. 
Now, there is nothing, there is nothing you can do to change your status as a child of God who has overcome the evil one. So that one day you will stand with Christ, he will take your hand and he will raise it and he will declare that you are the victor. He will say, this one has overcome sin so that he may eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Why this truth at this time? We don't know except that it stands to proclaim to us a truth that we so desperately need because we can so easily forget what is our new relationship to sin. Now, what do I mean by that? Christians have a new relationship to sin. We used to be enslaved to sin. By consequence, our spirits were in submission to the prince of the power of the air. Now, though we still sin, we have a fundamentally different relationship to sin. When God put in you a new heart, that heart was of the nature that it wants to, desires to, loves to obey God. The new heart that he placed in you means that your understanding and relationship to sin has been changed 180 degrees. Though you still sin, there is nothing that can undo that heart operation. You remain born again, free to obey the Father, now able to obey him, desirous to obey him. So therefore, Christ will keep working in your life to the point where he calls you home and he declares you to be the victor. And there are times when our sin is so dishonoring to God, when it is so persistent and so deep, but that never changes your new relationship to sin. You are now always in union with Christ, and he has already declared, I have justified him, I will glorify him. And so John issues a wonderfully encouraging third gospel indicative to the young men, perhaps they are struggling so much with sin. And then notice John repeats himself. Don't you just love First John? You look at this, and, and after he's issued these rich gospel indicatives, what does he do but repeat himself? I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Now, he changes things a little bit, and there we see the interchangeability of these blessings. Children, all of you, have come into a saving knowledge of God the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Know it again. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, now amplifying that first gospel indicative. The word of God abides in you. It is the word that's doing the work in your heart, and you have overcome the evil one. The question, of course, is why does he repeat himself? Now, in a sermon titled The Grammar of the Gospel, it's appropriate we talk a little bit more about grammar. Hopefully, your English translation represents a shift in the tense of John's writing between verses 12 and 13 and then verse 14. So the ESV says, I am writing, I am writing, I am writing. And then he says, I write. 
I write, I write. The change in tense is essentially a change in perspective. So the first time he issues these gospel indicatives, it's as if we're sat at John's desk with him. It's as if we're there with him real time, seeing his pen write them. And maybe as he writes them, he, he talks to us and he says, you do know your sins are forgiven. I'm writing to you to let you know you've overcome the evil one. Then he changes tense and the change in tense is such that he's now kind of stepping back and viewing holistically what he's said. It's almost as if John is saying at this point, now let me give you a summary, except what is the nature of his summary? The nature of my summary would be, I'm writing, I'm writing, I'm writing, I write, here's my summary, I just gave you three gospel indicatives. There's my summary statement. John changes tense to say, okay, summary now, and then he repeats the list. His summary is a repetition of the indicatives. Why? Do you not think it is because John is so eager to impress these truths upon our minds? Do you not think that John is going to take every opportunity he has to minister the truth to our hearts and say, okay, let me summarize and I'm just going to repeat because you need to hear them again. Friends, we have no idea how fickle we are when it comes to the gospel. We have no idea. We have not come to terms with how quickly we forget the blessings of the gospel. And the onus rests on us to minister these truths to our heart every single day. You need to rise in the morning and preach the gospel to yourself. And you need to preach every indicative that you have learned from God's word to your forgetful heart. You need to do all that you can to get these truths into your soul so that you start to resonate with the indicatives of the gospel. When you wake in the morning, don't look at your phone. You're just going to see an email that you don't want to read anyway. Rehearse the indicatives. I am forgiven on account of his name. Praise God. I have overcome sin. My relationship to Satan is now fundamentally different and I've been brought into a relationship with the Father. And when you lay in bed at night, falling asleep, fall asleep, pondering the indicatives of the gospel. And when you pray, men, when you pray with your wives, pray the indicatives of the gospel. I'm so grateful for my wife. Thank you, God, for giving her to me. Thank you for every way in which she helps. And I praise you that her sins are forgiven. You want to encourage your wife? Pray the indicatives of the gospel that stand true for her in Christ. When you pray with your children, let them hear a rehearsal of the gospel. God, please help little Mike with his baseball match today thank you that tomorrow we get to go to church and that when we go we will gather with people who stand forgiven in Christ you're listening to Timeless Truth Today when we think about how critical Christ's apostles were in the spread of the faith 
We must praise God our Savior chose disciples that would go all the way. The words of Christ ring true. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. John knew that Satan was working to defeat this new church. If you'd like to learn more about how to follow the one true God, visit our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. On the homepage, select Broadcasts for our entire collection of Christ-centered audio messages free for you to listen. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Listen tomorrow as we continue in our series with part three of Abiding in the Last Hour from Pastor Paul Twiss. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.